Now, you probably do something that is really simple every day, but it's actually quite profound. And that is you walk up to a light switch in your house and you flick that switch and the light comes on. Now, while this seems pretty straightforward, what is profound and incredible is the amount of infrastructure stretched all over the country you live in that makes that act possible. So today on the show, we're going to talk about the power grid. And we're joined by Seth Blumzak, Professor of Energy Policy and Economics and International Affairs in the Department of Energy and Mineral Engineering at Penn State University. He also co-directs the Penn State Centre for Energy Law and Policy, and he's an external faculty of the Santa Fe Institute. Now, in this conversation, Seth and I talk all about the power grid, how it started its history, how it evolved with no real central plan into what it is today. And we're going to explore why the power grid is so much more than just a technical system, a system that's made up of the power stations and the wires and the solar panels. What this system is, is a socio-technical system, a very complex system. And that means that the performance and the behavior of the grid is so much more than the sum of its components, than the, the power stations and the, the solar panels. It actually is a function of all of those, plus how we govern and the rules we set this system has a big impact on how it works. And you'll see that we don't always get that right. So let's join Seth to talk about one of the greatest socio-technical systems that we have stretched around our planet, the power grid. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Seth, welcome on the show. Thank you, Sean, for having me. How did you get interested in the grid in terms of power networks? So I went to college in Oregon in the United States, and I was a math and economics major. So it was a pretty quantity guy. So after I graduated, I didn't want to leave Portland, Oregon. So I got a job as a journalist, because that's what you do after you major in math is you go and write for a living. I got a job as a journalist working for a trade publication that covered the electricity industry in the Western United States. So kind of largely the states of Oregon, Washington, California, the Rocky Mountains, kind of that area. So I started working for this trade publication right at about the time that the state of California embarked on this massive experiment to deregulate its electricity sector, right? So electric utilities in the United States and around the world had been largely regulated or owned by the state for like 100 years, Really starting in earnest in the mid-1990s, there were some U.S. states and some countries that really kind of started to like pull at the threads of this regulation model. And they started to ask, like, can we make the electricity sector more efficient and more competitive? And so California was really a leader in this kind of experiment. And so it removed a lot of the price regulations on electricity and this experiment ended, how do I say this in an understated way, quite badly. (laughs) 
So Calif- the uh, state of California created this market for electricity that was both unbelievably complicated and created all of these opportunities for very clever companies to basically start to manipulate this market for their own gain. So, you know, probably the most famous of these companies was a company called Enron. There was a book and a movie about them called The Smartest Guys in the Room. And they figured out how to game this market to their own advantage, right? And they made lots and lots of money basically through taking advantage of the market's kind of wonky rules. In the California electricity market, there was a cap on the price. The power plants in California could not charge more than $250 a megawatt hour. But if you were a power plant outside of California and you were shipping your electricity into California, you could charge basically whatever you wanted. And California had no control over it because in the United States, there were rules about how states can regulate one another. So the game, or one of the many games, basically went something like this. Enron or some other clever player in this electricity market would basically make some other player outside of California a deal. The deal went something like this. We'll take electricity that's in California, like a power plant in California. We'll sell the output of that power plant outside of California. Then the out-of-state player would take that electricity and resell it into California to get around the price cap. And so what happened because there were these market players playing these games was that really over the period of several months, the state's utilities were bankrupted. The state had to step in, bail out the utilities, and basically start buying power on behalf of the entire state. Because the state's utilities went bankrupt, the suppliers, like the power plant owners, didn't want to sell to California anymore because they weren't sure how they were going to get paid. And so on top of a kind of market manipulation crisis, you had a genuine financial crisis in California. And so ultimately, this whole thing cost the state tens of billions of dollars, led to like rolling blackouts, like power shortages in California, like you would have in a developing country without really well-developed infrastructure And ultimately, it contributed to the political downfall of the state's governor, who at the time was a rising star in the Democratic Party named Gray Davis. And so in the wake of the California power crisis, the voters in California kicked Gray Davis out of office early and replaced him with Arnold Schwarzenegger, (laughs) the Terminator. (laughs) And so... I was in this sort of weird position where, like, as a journalist, I got to watch this happen in real time. It was shocking to have blackouts, like really sustained widespread blackouts in a modern economy is not just economically disruptive, it's dangerous. People die when there are blackouts. This is bad. But at the same time, it was just absolutely fascinating to watch. Like, I was an econ student in college, I mean, I knew all about the virtues of competitive markets and all the sort of good things that they could do. But I really sort of had to ask myself, like, how is it that all of these really smart people who designed this market, like, how did they get this so wrong? What happened here? So one of the things I started to realize as I learned more about what had happened 
was that one of the big failures in the California electricity deregulation debacle, it was designed in a way that just really didn't respect how electricity actually works and didn't respect the fact that like electricity is not like oil or grain. Like you can't say, I want to move this amount of electricity through this pathway to this person. Like that's not how electricity works. So you're in Oregon, you're watching all of this play out and it gets you interested in power grids. What did you do next? So it gets me interested in power grids and it didn't just get me interested in the power grid. It really got me interested in this kind of interaction between the engineering and economics, right? This sort of the way that this physical system works and was built versus what we would want to do with it economically so that electricity is not unduly or unburdenly costly to people. I met this professor at Carnegie Mellon University who was involved in this interdisciplinary research center, the Carnegie Mellon Electricity Industry Center, which still exists. And, uh, you know, he was just starting up this center and he sort of sold me on the idea of leaving Portland, Oregon, which I thought was heaven on earth, and moving to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which I had never been to, but had unfairly stereotypical ideas about what Pittsburgh was like. Anyway, so I moved to Pittsburgh to go to graduate school. You know, I did my degree through this interdisciplinary graduate program, got a PhD in engineering and public policy, wrote my dissertation around um, how it's possible to mess up the power grid by building more transmission lines, and then uh, came up to up the road from Pittsburgh to Penn State University to teach. I've been here ever since, and um, some of the work that I did on power grid topology and blackouts got the attention of the Santa Fe Institute folks. And she's probably, I've been involved with the Santa Fe Institute for probably close to 10 years now. Do you want to talk about the history of the power grid and, and where it came from and how it was built and how it was planned in inverted commas? So the grids that you will see in a lot of modern countries you know, if you look at the United States grid, right, that's a good example because we have a lot of population kind of spread throughout a very large area. I mean, if you look at our grid, it basically looks like somebody took like a hunk of spaghetti and threw it at the wall. <laughs> and that's kind of what the grid network looks like. And nobody planned this. Nobody designed it to look like that. Nobody ever would. It's a mess, right? It is this engineered marvel that has really been kind of the product of a lot of like incremental evolutionary steps, right? So the sort of like the like origin of the electricity industry is in New York City when Thomas Edison sort of basically built the first functioning power plant to supply electric light to a portion of what is now Wall Street. They sort of demonstrated the ability to generate electricity and move it over like many miles in upstate New York. And that was really the birth of the transmission grid. So you kind of build out the grid just a little bit. Then there are other power plants that get built to serve other areas. And so the grid, as we think about it, it developed almost as this like in this very kind of like hyper local way, right? So you would have these kind of electric light companies that would pop up in like metropolitan areas. In like the very early days of the electricity industry, the industry basically operated under a competitive model. 
So electric light companies would set up power plants, right, and lay distribution wire. Competing electric companies would set up power plants and lay distribution wire sometimes in the same places. Some of the sort of like original captains of the electricity industry realized the competitive threat that they were facing, not just from other companies, but also from, you know, local governments who wanted to basically take over the electric light supply. So the utilities basically started to make these deals with the states in which they operated, whereby the utilities would be granted monopolies. Basically, they would be shielded from competition to serve, say, Cleveland. And in return, they agreed to sort of all sorts of regulations about how much they could charge, eventually the quality of service that they would have to provide. And so kind of this sort of first shift happened from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. And then kind of as you move kind of from the Depression era, sort of through the World War II era, what you saw were efforts to really broaden access to electricity and also the reliability of the power grid, like avoiding blackouts, became much more economically important along with things like cost and access and things like that. And so utilities realized that if they started to interconnect their systems, so if like the Cleveland utility and like the Pittsburgh utility, just to pick two cities that are close together, if they started to interconnect their systems, then they would be able to provide much more reliable service because you'd have a more redundant system. There might be some economic advantages. And if you had you know, a power outage in one area, there might be some extra supply in the other area to make up some of that difference. And so these kind of physical interconnections of these formerly local utilities, along with coordination agreements to be able to essentially share surplus power and stuff, I mean, those started to emerge in, you know, about the third decade of the 20th century, right? Like in my state of Pennsylvania, these agreements go back to the 1920s when you had utilities in Philadelphia and New Jersey that started to interconnect their systems and sort of coordinate with each other. So as the economy grew and as the demand for electricity grew, these interconnections became more advantageous and it also allowed utilities to take advantage of fairly substantial scale economies in power generation. And by these reliability and economic benefits of interconnection, the grid started to kind of grow like this spider web. And so you had these little regional grids that started to interconnect with each other to form much regional grids, right? And now we don't have a single grid yet in the United States. We have three regional interconnections. One that is basically everything east of the Rocky Mountains, west of the Rocky Mountains, and then Texas still has its own independent grid. Wow. So you've got this system that has organically grown over 100 years. And I I mean, I think it would be obvious to anyone who's listening that this is a, a complex system. And that's why we're talking about it on the podcast. So can you talk about the grid as a complex system? The grid is both complex and complicated. (laughs) So explain the difference for the listener between the two of those. What do you mean by that? (laughs) The power grid is complicated because it is immense. It is 
vast. It has a lot of moving parts. And the power grid, I mean, we sort of think about it maybe as sort of analogous to like a pipeline or a highway system. You got like points of production, you got points of consumption, and you have these links that connect the two. But that's really not the way that the grid works. Because the way that the grid works is that the power that flows through this web of power lines is controlled by the laws of physics. And the laws of physics basically dictate that when you inject power right into the power grid, it's not just going to go sort of on the shortest path or whatever between point A and point B. It's going to spread out like ripples, like throughout the entire system. And so it really is a system where like everything does affect everything else. You know, I mean, it's complicated just because of the moving parts, but that's also why it's a complex system. It's a very highly dynamic system. One of the sort of things about the power grid is it has like one of the most simple user interfaces of any system we have ever designed, right? You just plug your thing into the wall. (laughs) But like when you plug your thing into that wall, it's not like a water well, right? Where when I turn the faucet on, I'm draining water from the well. When you plug your computer or your phone or whatever into that socket, you're connected to this system of thousands of very dynamic rotating machines. And these rotating machines are exerting lots of forces on one another, like wheels on a car that's kind of going down a road. All of these machines, right, they're all interconnected and they all affect each other by this transmission grid. So it's very, very highly dynamic. Part of the complexity arises in that the grid is both sort of very resilient and very fragile at the same time. What do you mean by that? I've heard you say that before, and it's really interesting. The grid, I mean, it's a very, very resilient thing because, I mean, it was built that way. It's a huge machine. And for the most part, if you poke the machine a little bit, it'll adjust. If I plug another computer into my office right now, the entire eastern power grid is going to react. But it's so big, that little act's not like a huge perturbation even if you scale that up a little bit. So if you have like an accident at like a a big power plant, the grid as a whole has basically is big enough and has enough inertia that it'll keep going. I mean, the grid is very resilient in that it's, is that like that interconnection creates this sort of hugely strong unified machine. But it's also very fragile for sort of exactly the same reason, right? Where... It's sort of like the bigger they are, the harder they fall. If you poke the grid enough, or if you poke it in kind of just the right way, if it's like just big enough that the grid as a whole isn't able to compensate for that, it can set off these like huge, very difficult to predict chain reactions, right? Of cascading failures, right? Where like one thing will fail and then The rest of the grid will try to compensate, but that will cause something else to fail. And you basically start this kind of this big chain reaction. And the way that these chain reactions work is a behavior that is very difficult to predict. And that's sort of one way that the grid is sort of very, can be very fragile at the same time as being very resilient, right? And that's one source of complexity. Another source of complexity which is becoming sort of more important as technology on the grid changes, is that you 
are, you know, both in terms of the technologies that are part of the grid and who exactly is sort of making decisions about how the grid operates and how it's used is becoming much, much more distributed. Sort of used to be the case that like a utility would have a relatively small number of big power plants, right? And some small ones too, but like, you know, it had a small number of power plants that it would use to meet demand in some area. And largely, the utility would follow demand, right? If it was a hot day, people wanted air conditioning, the utility would supply that. And the utility would basically be like the grid puppet master saying like, okay, we turn this plan off, we turn that one on. And so it was controlled in this very, and planned in this very centralized way. So in, in the in the beginning of these local utilities, it's hierarchical. They're able to sort of be the puppet masters of their zone. And then that began to change? Yeah, so fast forward to the mid-1990s when, you know, there were a lot of states and a lot of areas that were sort of really trying to loosen or change a lot of the regulations on electricity supply, right? Around the same time, we started to be more concerned about the local environmental impacts from electricity generation. So like, right, we started to become more concerned about the climate. You had changes in where we were generating electricity. So we're generating more electricity from big natural gas power plants or nuclear plants. We're generating more electricity from wind and solar facilities, hydroelectric facilities, places like that. We're trying to do that basically on top of the power grid that we had built decades ago. And also about this time, you have sort of a real fundamental economic change in kind of the basic costs of power generation, where it all of a sudden becomes a lot more economical to put solar panels on your roofs. And so for people like individuals to really become their own electricity supplier, that involves just a real kind of spreading out over the decisions about how much electricity is going to be generated where and when, where we are going to put those sources of electricity generation, right? It's not just your big power plants anymore. So it's not just that you are seeing this kind of technological diffusion but you're also seeing like a lot of diffusion in decision making where like it's not just the utility deciding how much electricity to supply to the customers that demand it but you have individual customers large and small that are making decisions about do they want to supply their own electricity do they want to be able to store electricity in one of those fancy schmancy tesla batteries do they want to connect their car to the grid in some way, whether it's just their house or the sort of the broader grid? And so you have this increasingly distributed decision-making, which is happening like on top of this system that is still highly interconnected, still follows all the laws of physics. You're seeing some of these kinds of emergent behaviors on the grid that are emerging from this distributed decision-making that would not necessarily like have been easy to predict because they emerge from the collective decisions that are made by 
an increasingly large number of actors. Seth, there's an example of that, that you know, if a load of people are going solar, then the, just the household demand during the day is dropping off, and that's something that would have never happened in the past. Is that an example of that? Yeah, that's probably one of the best examples, right, is that it sort of used to be the case that electricity demand would basically peak like in the mid-afternoon-ish, mid to afternoon, maybe late afternoon, and utilities planned for this, right? They got really good at planning for it. And then within several years, you have kind of this whole daily cycle of electricity demand that is disrupted when all of a sudden, like, at those peak demand times, people are producing their own electricity. It's not like you saw this dramatic change from one day to the next, but it has happened fast enough that it's been hard for utilities to plan for. It's been hard to sort of predict the rate at which it's going to happen. It's caused kind of like a lot of reactive scrambling on the part of utilities that all of a sudden have to deal with this. So traditionally, when they would have been planning to bring on the power plants in the afternoon, they don't have to do that to the same degree, which just forces a sort of a, a rethink on, on how you prepare for the demand you're going to ultimately have to supply. So you, you sort of have to think about when you're going to need to meet that demand. And then the sort of other thing is that you go from having really, really low demand in the middle of the day when all of the solar panels are cranking out lots of power to having really, really high demand very, very quickly. And so like in California, sort of the starkest example of this, if you look at like how much electricity the grid has to start supplying between the time that the sun starts to go down and the time that it finishes setting and all the solar panels turn off. I mean, that's the equivalent of like multiple big cities, like multiple New Yorks, multiple Londons, multiple Tokyos, right? It's a huge challenge. So it's not just that demand goes down because of the solar panels. It's you get this sort of sharp edge where when the sun's going down over Los Angeles at the same time and all those panels are dropping off, suddenly that almost quite dramatic uptick in demand has to be met. What goes down comes back up. It's a big challenge. So can you talk about what did regulation look like for that first 100 years? You know, what was it striving to do? And then when, why was there a drive for deregulation? What was behind that in, in say, places like California? The regulatory model that utilities followed for, again, basically a century, okay, was one where they were, so they were granted this geographic monopoly, and in exchange, they had their prices regulated, they had to provide universal service, and they had to provide a certain quality of service. And so if the utility needed to spend money on a new power plant or a new power line or whatever, then you know, as long as the utility could argue that it was being done for reliability or consistent with its kind of you know, social charter, what its regulators wanted it to do, then the, basically the costs of that would be paid by ratepayers, by people who used electricity. And that was a fantastic model for growing this nascent industry because from a business standpoint, there was very little risk. If you're going to build like a gas pipeline, 
there's so much capital that gets sunk into that. Like, you better be sure that somebody wants that gas pipeline, or there's just a lot of risk. In the electric utility business, a lot of that risk was removed because as long as the utility could justify it to its regulator, it was almost certainly going to recover all of those costs. So it was a great model for growing this industry. But kind of as it matured, it sort of started to show some cracks. So in the United States, kind of one of the first cracks was around the use of nuclear energy, which was of great interest to the United States because in the 1970s, it was a way to generate electricity without using oil, so without that exposure to the volatile global oil market. But these nuclear power plants turned out to be much, much more expensive than utilities thought. And so customers wound up being on the hook for these huge cost overruns. So that was sort of an example of kind of the cracks in the economic and regulatory model kind of around the same time, again, being driven by the oil crisis in the 1970s, there was a lot of interest in conservation and energy efficiency. And utilities had no interest in energy efficiency because their business model was building more stuff and selling more electricity. So in places like California, there was sort of a real concern, and it really started with large industry. There was a real concern that energy prices, and especially electricity, were making their industries in California and other parts of the United States not economically competitive globally. These concerns were being raised in an increasing era of globalization. And so if it was becoming not cost-effective to make steel in the United States, then basically steel companies would go somewhere else where costs were lower. Energy costs were only one part of that. I'm not pinning this all on energy, but it was part of the story. And it was sort of part of the reason for the push for regulatory reform. What was that? What path did they go down on the regulatory reform? Basically, the belief at the time was that kind of the wires part of the business, that probably needed to remain regulated because the wires and the interconnection have all these kind of like public good, public benefit aspects. And you didn't want to get into the situation where you had like multiple companies laying duplicative infrastructure in the same place, trying to like outcompete each other for the marginal customer, right? But there was a feeling that like, because you had this extensive transmission grid, you didn't have to rely on the local utility for power supply anymore people who own power plants in potentially faraway locations could compete with the utility to supply electricity. In economics, we call this a contestable market. The extensive transmission grid made it really, really easy for a power plant in, say, Florida, just conceptually, to compete with a utility in New York because you could just easily move the power from Florida to New York. At the same time, there had been very, very successful deregulation in industries like trucking and airlines and natural gas, where there's still some local regulation, but a lot of the kind of higher level, effectively wholesale price regulation was turned over to competitive forces. Like in the United States and other countries, there were these regional electricity markets that were created, basically where you had 
like a regional transmission grid operator. In the United States, we call them a regional transmission organization or an RTO, right? whose job it was to manage the power grid. But we didn't want those regional organizations to look just like giant utilities. Okay. So we set up all of these restrictions on these regional organizations where their job was to basically make sure the grid was reliable, but they couldn't own anything. Like they couldn't own power plants, they couldn't own transmission lines. Okay, yep. And so they had to come up with these mechanisms to make sure that there was enough electricity supply. And the use of markets, like California did and like a lot of other countries did, was kind of one of the principal mechanisms, right? So instead of like having the utility decide to build a power plant in a certain location and all this other stuff, the grid operator creates market signals through prices. And these prices drive power plant owners to decide whether they're going to operate on a given day or not, and also drive decisions about where new power plants are going to go. And so in a lot of places, that sort of strong hand of the utility in this regulated environment right, has been replaced by the sort of like invisible hand of market forces. But the social goal is the same. These regional grid operators, they still have to make sure that they have a reliable grid or they're going to get in trouble. But they don't own anything. So how do they set up this system where the owners of the assets, right, the power plants and the transmission lines are going to make their assets available? to meet the social goal, are going to invest in the system to meet the social goal. And so, you know, the creation of these markets, which are multifaceted and themselves very complicated, that has been one of the primary tools that grid operators around the world have utilized. And, I mean, I hope I'm not getting too ahead of myself, it's, you know, introduced yet another source of complexity into this system because not only do you have these markets, which are very dynamic, you have just these very fundamental changes in how the grid is governed. You have these markets, but like who makes up the rules for the markets? In the old system, the regulator and the utility basically made all the rules. Okay, in this, right, in the new system, you have a much more complex governance model where it's not just the regional grid operator and some regulator making the rules, but the asset owners, the power plant owners, the transmission line owners, the developers. It works different ways in different places, but they all have a role in kind of determining how these markets work that they didn't really have in the old system. There's been this kind of emergence of very, very different governance models. You can certainly point to ways in which it has kind of affected how the grid is operated and where the investments are being made. Does that mean then, Seth, that when you get these the rules wrong, and wrong is probably an in inverted commas, but when you set up the rules and you, you miss something, shall we say, and then people can take advantage of those rules, is that ultimately what happened in California, that the rules rewarded the wrong sort of behavior, which ultimately then affected the reliability of the grid? That is a great example, 
right? The rules of California's complicated market, companies like Enron invested enough time in trying to understand the rules that they could figure out how to manipulate them. They also had a part in creating those rules in the first place. So Enron is sort of the poster child for this, but they were not the only ones. This kind of governance dynamic was certainly present in the early California electricity market, but continues to this day, where you largely have what are called incumbents, people who are like already in the market, creating the rules of the market. And so they're not stupid. (laughs) What are they going to do? They're going to try to craft rules that are going to advantage them. And so this was certainly the case in California with Enron and other power companies trying to influence the rules of the California electricity market. We've seen in some of the governance research that we've done, we see this same sort of influence happening today in different regional power grids in the United States. It's not just like the power plant companies they're not the only incumbents that are able to influence the rules. I don't mean to pick on them. The local distribution utilities, they're also very influential. And they have a different set of incentives and want to try to push the market rules in a different way. I mean, this really matters, not just in terms of how we operate the current grid, but as we think about how we get to a grid of the future, where we want it to be more sustainable, we want to have more, not just more wind and solar power, but you know, more distributed energy production, more energy storage. We want to have this whole ecosystem of like electric vehicles and things like that. How the market rules are made is really going to influence how fast or slow or if we ever get to that future and what bumps we hit along the way. Seth, thank you very much for being on the show. That was great. Thank you. Of course. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 